Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today, I'm honored to be joined by Scott Allender to talk with him about his brand new book, The Enneagram of Emotional Intelligence, A Journey to Personal and Professional Success. And, you know, one of the things that drives a lot of what we do here on the Learner's Corner podcast is that desire to learn and to grow and to become the best person that we can be. I know that I want to be that. I I want to be the best Caleb that I can be. And so that's why I have guests like Scott on the podcast. And in this conversation uh, in particular, we're going to get into just a lot of, uh, <laughs> honestly, at times felt a little bit like a like a, just a coaching session or a counseling session, which I'm very grateful for of just working through some of the things that, that I'm processing with and processing through as well. And, you know, if you uh, want to continue to learn from me as well, you know, please check out my sub stack to where I just give bunches of recommendations for different things that I'm currently learning from and things that I'm learning about, whether that be comics or YouTube videos or songs or movies or music or TV shows or really the gamut is very wide. The only requirement is that it has to engage my curiosity and my imagination in some way. And so if you are looking to expand your imagination, if you're looking for something to engage your curiosity, check out my Substack and you can check out some of the things that are doing that for me. Now, as I mentioned, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I have people like Scott on the podcast is for growth to help us grow, to help, to help myself grow. And hopefully it helps you grow as well. And so let me tell you a little bit about Scott and then we're going to jump into the conversation. So Scott Allender is an expert in global leadership and organizational development, along with co-hosting the Evolving Leader podcast. Scott regularly teaches Enneagram workshops and conducts typing interviews and emotional intelligence assessments for individuals and teams who seek to become more radically self-aware and cognizant of the impact they have on the world. And so that's a little bit about Scott. And without any further ado, here is our conversation. Scott, it is so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Caleb. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting started, you've written this book, The Enneagram of Emotional Intelligence. And I figured it might be a fun place to start is I'd love to just hear where your journey with emotional intelligence and kind of how that morphed into the Enneagram began. Sure. Yeah, of course. So I've always had a uh, curiosity about people. Um, an interest in psychology. I originally was thought I was going to be a psych major at university. And uh, at the time, circumstances were such that I couldn't see myself going all the way with it. And I thought, I don't really want to have just the bachelor's, not that there's anything wrong with it, but I was going to do it. I wanted to do it kind of all the way. And I'm an Enneagram three, so you might know why that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I ended up you know, studying business, but with an emphasis in industrial psychology, organizational psychology. And 
since then I've kind of been on this path of, of you know, working in organizations um, and with individuals um, just in, in how they make sense of the world and how they can become more self-aware and, and all the things. Um, Fast forward, I, I pursued certain certifications and certain psychometrics as a way to add to my ability to hopefully help people um, get more in touch with, you know, their preferences and their behaviors and what they do and, and all the things. And, um, you know, along the way, uh, you know, I got certified in Myers-Briggs, I got certified in a tool called Hogan, got certified in Emotional Intelligence 2.0, which is the system that I hang the, the framing of the book around. Um, and about a decade ago, I started personally exploring the Enneagram. And uh, I, at first, I, if I'm honest, I thought it was just another psychometric, right? It was just another, just another angle, just another set of language to kind of talk about the same stuff. So I didn't give it a whole lot of attention for a while. And then a set of circumstances happened over a couple of years, and it pushed me to go deeper. And then it became the most sort of personally transformative uh, journey for, for me. And um, at some point, you know, having done emotional intelligence coaching for so long professionally and not really seeing the kinds of changes that I wanted to see, um, maybe wondering if I was very good at it, but also talking to other emotional intelligence coaches who shared something similar. Um, and then doing some research, which I published in the book about how little awareness we actually have, you know, and awareness is the sort of cornerstone of emotional intelligence. So anyway, long story long, I, I wanted to merge the two systems because the moment sort of hit me that the reason we're not getting very far focusing on emotional intelligence is because I think the whole in some ways, the whole profession can get focused on the wrong things. Mm. And I don't mean to indict anyone because I, I love my fellow emotional intelligence coaches. I love the frameworks. I love the teachings. But what I mean is we're not able to get under the waterline of consciousness in the way that we need to in order to truly evolve as emotionally intelligent people. And I think the Enneagram can provide a map for how we do that. Mm. Yeah. Can you kind of tease out that approach of what you were saying? Like some approaches to emotional intelligence just don't work, but for some reason the Enneagram does. Can you kind of yeah. compare and contrast between what does like, I don't know, maybe the traditional methods towards yeah. emotional intelligence that you found that just don't work and then kind of, you know, contrast it with what does work? Well, what I find interesting is that you know, the whole topic is around this idea of emotions, but the process tends to be, now certainly not in every person or every approach's case, but tends to be far too logical and rational, mm -hmm. meaning it quickly kind of moves you past the experience of emotions themselves and what constructed them, why, why that feeling is there, um, and moves you to this sort of rationalistic approach to behavioral changes that that kind of like okay caleb here's here's your report here's where you're out of balance 
And let me ask you some questions around that. And most likely you won't be very surprised by it because it's a you according to you inventory. You sat down, you answered it according to what you think of yourself. So you're not really very surprised. You see some things, you're not shocked by it. And I ask you about it and you go, no, I know that's the case. Yeah, I know I know how I deal with stress or don't deal with stress. I know, I know where I have problems seeing myself well. And we try to give you some ideas about how to maybe, you know, make some progress against that. And it's just not very transformative information is not transformation mm -hmm. and the enneagram is a whole different set of uh, measures because enneagram doesn't actually care very much about what you do but why you do it it's all about why why do you maybe not see yourself clearly why is it that you struggle in these types of relationships and not just in a heady way but invites you to go deep underneath what is, you know, into the shadows, into the parts of ourselves that we don't see and that we don't see that we don't see. And to start to then get, what's the story underneath this belief? What's the fear I carry that informs the way I see myself and others? What's the core desire and childhood wounds that are underneath that, that distorted my view of reality? And that's when you can start getting into the depths. Now that's difficult to do in organizational life, right? Because, you know, it's like, okay, we need more emotionally intelligent leaders. Can you come in in a three hour workshop and help me get more intentional, more emotionally intelligent leaders? Yeah, sure. Um, when the truth is for most of us, if not all of us, if we're really going to have any kind of change, we got to go deeper, you know, we mm -hmm. got to get underneath. And that's what the Ingram invites us into. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about like how you shifted your coaching style then from like believing that this is how emotional intelligence works to, you know, discovering the Enneagram, discovering the more emotional like uh, components to it. Talk to me about some of the shifts that you went through personally and mm. then even in helping coach others. Yeah. Ah, that's a good question. Um I mean, there's been a lot of shifts personally. Mm -hmm. They continue to be right. Like I'm not, I'm not a guru, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a bozo on the bus, like yeah. the rest of us, right? I'm just trying to get yeah. somewhere. And, um, you know, progress is definitely. I, I have I have experienced some transformation, but it's an ongoing process. Um, I think when I coach with the Enneagram, um. I help people to, well, you know, when, when they're new, I help them to start with, you know, trying to land on their type, right? So we start with mm -hmm. just trying to get the information down. If they know their type and, you know, then we, we look at, um, we look at self-limiting beliefs and stories that they hold often. And I kind of keep gently drawing them back from, you know, desired behavior changes to what's underneath the behavior change. And, mm -hmm. and in fairness, many emotional intelligence coaches do the same thing. But what's the limiting factor of that is that there's no roadmap, right? The Enneagram isn't just a typology that tells you this is your type and here's some descriptions of it. The, the Enneagram itself is a map. And when you start working with it over time, you start learning that it invites you to move and to to be able to lean on other resources provided by the other types. So for example, I'm a three. Mm -hmm. um, and if your listeners are familiar with subtypes, I'm a self-preservation three, which is a mm -hmm. different kind of three than usually here described. Yeah. 
And part of the work I can do is the wings, right? It's the wings two and four, in my case, the, the number to your left or your right. And so it's an invitation to be able to work with, with you know, your wings and the arrows. And there's a whole bunch of things that I don't want to, you know, bore your audience about here. But I think the Enneagram is a, the coaching process is, is more in motion and it's more fluid and it kind of gives us the language and the tools to keep coming back to some anchoring truths and then uh, be able to question the stories that we hold in a different way. Hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, as you're talking about that, um, I'm also a three and I am oh. a self-preservation self-preservation oh, wow. as well. And, uh, you know, it's interesting for me. I, I've just caught this recently in myself and I caught it because of my wife. My wife tends to be, um, she's, she's more extroverted than mm. I am. She shares more of herself. Mm-hmm. And I, I grew up feeling like I need to, needed to protect myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I needed to play all of my cards to the chest. Yeah. And I've, I've just been very challenged recently to where I'm like, I'm like, I like getting comfortable with the fact of like, I'm going to tell people meaningless things yeah. about my day. Huh. Like I went to Starbucks today and, you know, I took our dog out on a walk and it's just, I don't know. That's just a shift that I've noticed in myself because like I, otherwise I would just eliminate conversation. I wouldn't have any conversations with people where it'd be like, you know, how's your day? <laughs> it's fine. You know, kind of move on. Move on from yeah. There. <laughs> yeah. How has that been for you? Cause that's, that's good inner work to, to see that. And then to be able to kind of practice a different approach that then starts to form different habits and different ways of, um, you know, not just self-expression, but the way you sort of experience your own emotional feelings. How, how is that, what shifts has that created for you by starting to open up like that? You know, I, I think it has made, like, I've definitely connected with people more because of it. Mm. Like, it's just led to learning more about what's like, what's going on in other people's lives. And I think the other thing is it's helped people get to know me better. Cause I feel like I've, and I mean, this isn't a surprise, you know, for three, I've always been pretty good connecting uh, mm-hmm. with people. I can kind of attune to that. Um, but I would say the, like it's, it's been a small act of just letting people into getting, getting people to know who I am more. And yeah. Yeah. Um. You know, when I, when I engage in practices like that, it also helps me reconnect to myself because, you know, um, the very nature of being able to express, you're talking about expressing things that you've done, like you described as sort of meaningless, but it's not meaningless, right? Those are important things in your day, right? And Mm -hmm. um, extending yourself in any kind of way that opens you up as a self-preservation dominant, um, hopefully over time shows you that you're, you're still safe, right? Mm-hmm. The self-preservation tendency is to say, I got to protect myself. It might make me more introverted and things, although it can show up different in different types, but um, the act of putting yourself out there and noticing that um, you're okay, your body's okay, mm-hmm. right? Uh, nothing's bad's happened. Um, hopefully over time makes those things less strenuous and they just become a little bit more natural and your body starts to trust and release the tension it has that it's trying to always 
always protect itself. So for your audience that may not know, um, the subtypes, so you've, you've got nine core Enneagram types. Each mm -hmm. one of those Enneagram types have what's known as a passion. And I'm not talking about like what you're passionate about, like golfing or something. It's like, you know, think of it as a crime of passion. It's like this all consuming emotional vice that takes over and informs everything else that we think, feel, and see, which becomes a really important part of doing the Enneagram work, you know, that other systems can't get to because how often before, you know, anybody of us got introduced to the Enneagram, did we think that there was a dominant emotional vice that was sort of overshadowing all of my other emotional experiences and forming how I see the world, make sense of things, relate to people, a whole bunch of stuff, right? Then you've got these three um, dominant survival instincts, self-preservation, which we're talking about, which is all about the body. Is my body safe? Do I have what I need? Do I have shelter? Do I have food? You know, I'm a self-preservation dominant. Sometimes it's it's noon and I'm already thinking about what's for dinner, right? Like it's mm -hmm. about that kind of instinct. And then you've got the social instinct, which is all about survival in groups and, you know, what's my standing in the group. And if you think back on the, you know, survival in the Serengeti, this idea of I can run in the center of the herd, less chance I'm going to get picked off by the lion. And then you've got the one-to-one -one instinct, which is all about important bonding. And those instincts, and I don't cover this in the book, I might write a part two if this does well, that I will get into this. Um, those dominant instincts have this sort of alchemy with the vice of the type and creates a very different expression than any of the other dominant instincts. So we have these instincts. These instincts are meant to be in perfect balance all the time, only firing when we need them to. They mm -hmm. happen faster than we think, faster than we feel. They just turn on and turn off. If you watch animals, that's what happens, right? A zebra or a deer hears a rustling in the leaves behind them, they instinctually run and then they stop running when they no longer feel under threat and they go back to grazing in the grass, seemingly unaffected by the potential trauma. But us humans are much more complicated than that. We remember the, the rustling in the leaves. We remember when it was a, a, a real threat. And then these instincts get all out of sequence and out of order, right? They don't, they don't, they're no longer balanced. We end up with one that we're convinced will never get met by, by itself, like we, we are threatened and that becomes like a dominant instinct and it steals energy from the others and you end up with this sort of sequence. So for me, my sequence is self-preservation, which means self-preservation is always on in me, even when I don't need it, it's just firing. And it's followed in my sequence by uh, the one-to-one -one instinct. Mm -hmm. And then I repress social, which means the social instinct barely ever turns on even when I do need it to. So I didn't intend to go into this little sidebar on instincts and subtypes, but so much, this is such a, for me, it's such a great example of this journey and the work that it's pointed me to. Cause I would say the last couple of years, I've been spending more time doing inner work on trying to bring balance back to my instincts than I have anything to do with my dominant Enneagram type. Mm -hmm. Like that's always a piece of work, but noticing, because my wife is self-preservation repressed. Mm -hmm. So it, it became a huge, huge insight for us on some of the tension and conflict we experienced because I'm a self-preservation dominant. I'm thinking about getting to the airport three hours ahead of time, just in case something mm -hmm. happens. Right. Yeah. And she's self-preservation repressed. And she's like, uh, I'll, I'll start packing maybe three hours before we go to the airport. Right. Yeah. And so anyway, there's layers and layers and layers within the Enneagram. That's why it's, it's a system that's so beautifully, it's beautifully complex, 
which I think only adds to its validity because people, we are all beautifully complex mm -hmm. and the layers and layers and layers that we have, there's, there's the, the, the invitation of this Enneagram journey is to kind of, it can, it can go as complicated as we need it to be to simplify our understanding of ourselves and others. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about what that, like what that search for balance has looked like for you. Yeah. Well, from on the instincts, it looks like um, it looks like trying to be a lion tamer to the dominant instinct, right? Mm -hmm. Right. It looks like confronting it, right? And um, well, let me back up. At first, it looked like understanding why why is that always turned switched on? Why don't I feel like my physical needs are going to get met? And I had to do some like retrospective around what's the what's the stories what's the things i grew up in that i internalized this idea that i wasn't safe physically like and mm -hmm. i wasn't i didn't grow up in an abusive home or anything um but i can look back and see where there was um you know uh, concerns around you know what i was gonna eat for dinner and things my mom had gone back to school after my parents got divorced and so I was really young and she was away and we had no real money. We weren't, we, we were fine. We weren't like on the streets, kind of no money, but it was really, really tight. And I was, you know, at 10 years old, sometimes adults weren't really around and not, not for long periods of time. I don't want to paint any horrific picture, but enough where instinctively I started to question, gosh, you know, I'm making myself some, you know, cream of wheat for dinner over here and nobody's around and instinctively it's like again nothing on the nothing abusive or, or neglectful mm -hmm. but just on the body the body starts going okay you got to take it you're gonna have to take care of this yourself right? we're gonna we're gonna be okay we're gonna we're just always gonna be on the lookout to protect ourselves right so i had to first uncover that and then uh over time go back to what i started with which is now as you know well into my adulthood um, well, well into my adulthood, um, I feel like a lion tamer sometimes going, that's, my body is perfectly okay. And it has been for all these years. And so I'm constantly trying to, to, uh, to sort of take the whip and push it back at the same time, the social repressed, I feel like I try to nurture that. I try to have a lot of, um, compassionate and treat it like my, my Enneagram teachers sort of said, you know, it's, it's like this neglected, I'm going to mess up what he said, but something to the effect of it's like this, this neglected baby that kind of got left in the, you know, the basement by itself and you have to go down there and you have to scoop it up and you have to love on it and be tender mm. to it and, and sort of nurture it back to health. And so those are sort of the mental images I have when I, recognize when my wife says hey let's have so-and-so over for dinner tonight i'm like tonight like right now in two hours no way because social repressed right it's like no and self-preservation going that feels threatening to my body and i don't want to be social and then having to remember that the last time that happened it actually turned out to be quite enjoyable and my body was safe and i actually quite liked being social with these individuals and and so it's remembering and then doing a combination of keep the dominant at bay with some force and kind of nurture back to health slowly and repeatedly because it's always going to be a challenge. And I do find it's an ongoing challenge for me, Caleb, honestly, but 
I feel like it's getting more comfortable to be uncomfortable. Hmm. Well, is that just through repetition? Yes, through practice. It's through doing th- those things and then, you know, kind of going through that mental and emotional exercise around what that looks like and then and then acting on it. And then kind of what I was asking you about, you know, with the telling people things like I walked the dog and I did this. It's like through those practices, you start and then if you're if you're intentional about reflecting on how you came through it okay. Mm-hmm. Um it makes a connection. It's like, like that mind, emotion, body connection. Like, Hey, we did something hard for us. It's okay that it's hard for us. It's okay. That it's not hard for other people, but this is hard for us. And that's okay. And then we remember and reflect on and, and we're good and we survived it. And, and then over time, it's like that, that high level hum. That's the dominant instinct. And, and it just, it just dials back a little bit. You know, I don't feel like it's, I don't feel like, I don't feel like it's quite as loud. The volume's not quite as high as it used to be. Hmm. Yeah. I think, I think for me, cause I'm, I think the biggest thing that I would say that my self-preservation shows up in is I find myself constantly looking towards, do I have enough rest or like, mm. am I going yeah. too hard? Um, and part of that is because like a few years ago, I, I felt like, um, uh, my, my, I felt like my threeness went into such an overdrive and then it, it just like, I just got burnt out on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I, I think I find myself, I don't know. That's the biggest thing that I find myself thinking about in terms of like the physical needs of myself of just like, am I moving at like, am I moving at a good pace? Do I have enough rest in order to keep going? Mm. yeah i don't know i'd just be curious for any any thoughts that you have on that well you're tapping into something that's uh that, that there's a there's a positive and potentially negative duality here which is mm-hmm. one is that as a three you're at an advantage in a way with your self-preservation dominance to other threes by the fact that you're paying attention to the sleep and do you have enough rest and enough physical mm-hmm. resourcing and I talk about this a lot in the book, right? I talk about bringing together, so the Enneagram, you know, bringing together body, heart, and head and how, you know, we in, so you and I share the heart center. So we start and lead with feeling and then have a tougher time accessing our physical sensations and gut instincts as well as our thinking. And so it's about bringing these sort of things together. And for a three who tends to run into exhaustion, you know, like, it, I, I'm hearing more stories of threes who end up in the ER because mm-hmm. they don't stop and they don't pay attention. And they almost actually wear this badge, like, you know, this lack of sleep as a badge of honor. So you as a self-preservation, same for me, because I resonate with what you're just saying. We're paying more attention to that, right? And mm-hmm. So there's a benefit to that. And so that's good. And then overdone, you know, these kinds of things become liabilities for us. You know, it's like becoming, you know, so concerned about it at the expense of other more important or even enjoyable things that we miss out on because we're so concerned with caring for our bodies or for Mm -hmm. all the kind of material things, right? It's not just, you know, I say physical body, but it also has to do with, again, things that are very positive on one hand, like self-pressed dominance of any type, you know, 
tend to be more focused on taking their vitamins and you know uh, saving in their 401k and doing all that stuff which is all good stuff but again because the instincts get distorted and the self-preservation for and it's sliding scale some people are self-preservation dominant and it's not off the charts dominant and i've seen some where it's like way off the charts like like their whole existence seems consumed with that and again that same could happen for social or the one-to-one and these and the and this is similar to our enneagram types themselves what's so hard to transcend the limitations of our enneagram type is because there's so much gifts that they give to us at the same time right Mm -hmm. like our threeness that we share gave us a lot of gifts right and self-preservation as we just were talking about has its benefits right there's important thing I have a friend who's self-preservation repressed and really repressed mm-hmm. and it works against him in a big bad way in fact back you know 15 years ago we happened to we were you know we're dear friends and we were roommates for a while back in California and uh I didn't have this language 15 years ago but um now I do and I look back and laugh because he was so self-preservation repressed that Sometimes I'd wake up in the morning and I'd realize, you know, he had come home after I'd been in bed. And not only had he not locked the front door, he didn't even shut it. It was like wide open. Like literally this happened like three times where it wasn't even, it wasn't even closed. And like, just, you know, no. And then suddenly, you know, he's the guy that like works until 7 PM and re- and realizes he didn't choose not to eat. He just forgot to eat. Right. And mm-hmm. now his, he's got, so there's all these sort of distortions, which I think, um, what it points to, and, and coming back to the start of our conversation on the limitations of emotional intelligence coaching is this kind of stuff we're saying, like none of this is available to us in an emotional intelligence profile, right? Like mm-hmm. this sort of, you know, the instincts in us and, and how those drives get distorted and create all sorts of problems for us. And the passion of our emotional experience, that the vice that sort of overshadows and overtakes all of other things. And so, so much of what I'm, what I've come to in this is that in many ways, we're having conversations about emotional intelligence because there's not a lot of places where we can have conversations about the real stuff, which is the wounds and the fears and childhood stories and all the stuff that leaves us wounded Mm -hmm. and in need of healing and emotional recovery and wholeness, and especially in an organizational context, that's a really difficult conversation to have um, and can feel way too intrusive. And so, you know, you, you certainly don't want to push your way in in that way. But I almost think to some extent, and I'll, put, I'll caveat this to say that I don't think this is entirely accurate, but emotional intelligence has become the, become the organization's solution to trying to do what actually it can't do in the sense that, or what other people need to do on their own. In other words, emotional intelligence has become the substitution for emotional healing and wholeness Mm. and recovery because we see all the detrimental stuff that happens when people are emotionally unintelligent. You know, we know that 70% or more of a leader's success or failure is directly correlated to emotional intelligence attributes you know we know that um 
so much of you know our success in business and in life and our sense of well-being can all be directly correlated to these measures of emotional intelligence and it's true and it's validated and it's been studied to death and at the same time in some ways what we're really talking about is that when somebody is acting emotionally unintelligent they're acting out from a place of woundedness and in most environments it's not a welcome conversation or nor is it necessarily been an appropriate conversation for us to try to go into that level of person, like, like that personalness. But that's kind of what this book and, and my work is pointing to is that when we say emotional intelligence, we're talking about, we need to go recover these lost broken parts of ourselves that are hidden deep in the shadows of awareness and nurse them back to health. And if we could do that, then we don't really need to talk a lot about emotional intelligence anymore because mm. it'll just flow freely from recovery. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I want to dive into like some of the things that you look for in terms of like the, the instincts and even in like some of the, some of the triads as well. Mm -hmm. Like some of the things that you keep saying, Oh yeah. Like, Hey, in your body, look for this mm -hmm. heart, mind, so on and so forth. Um, but one of the things I would love to ask you because like I, I feel like I've been like really serious on this journey towards that healing that you've talked about and like working through um, like just working through whatever I need to work through in order to be the person for the people who that I, who I love my future kids, my wife, you know, friends, all that stuff. And like one of the things that I'm always trying to figure out is like, how do you discover like, what, what do you pay attention to, to figure out what you need to work on? Because mm. like, I know part, like part of it is what you were saying, pay attention to the emotions, pay attention to, you know, the, the disproportional reactions to, um, to whatever stimuli or things that you're going through. But is there anything else that you look for in terms of like, Hey, there, there, there could be something there if you're seeing this repeated pattern in your life. Mm. Yeah, I think. So there are non-type specific things to do that improve our awareness. And I write about them in the book as well. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I won't go into all of it, but I'll start at a high level. You know, again, as I mentioned a little while ago, there's the gut center, the body types, eight, nines, and ones, that the heart centers, two, three, and four, that the head center, five, six, and sevens. If you belong to any of those triads, your dominant emotional, or I'm sorry, your dominant intelligence is rooted there. And what ends up happening is um, we overuse that intelligence at the expense of not using the other two. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is looking to see where, you know, for a body type, where are they trying to use action and, you know, yeah, gut and instinct where they actually need to be able to engage the prefrontal cortex and stop moving long enough to think something through or to reconnect to the emotional experience. So there's this sort of working with the triads in that way. And then mm -hmm. there's practices we can do that are common to all types. Like I'm a big believer in mindfulness work and breath work and um, you know, yoga and, um, you know, there's a lot of things and I talk about many of them. I think type specific uh, what you're getting at is, you know, I've been doing this work for a long time is what you're telling me. And mm -hmm. you know, what else can I do for a three? Um, one of the things is to have a daily practice of really 
connecting to what you feel mm -hmm. and naming that emotion because you're the center of the heart triad, my friend. So you actually are the most feeling. Four, people think fours are. Fours have the most access to feelings, but threes are the most emotional. Mm -hmm. But the vice, the passions we've been talking about for a three is self-deception. And the self-deception is two things. One is that we deceive ourselves into thinking that all the little subtle shifts we make in our interactions with people based on the audience that we have and that sort of chameleon-like, you know, changes we make in our language and our humor and our conversation style, that, that we're being authentic at all, all times when we're not. And the other thing that that, that, that self-perception, I'm sorry, self-deception is doing is deceiving us in that we're not actually an emotional type because we're action oriented and we want to get things done and we're working to achieve and impress and find our worth through the eyes of others. And so because that's such a structured part of the ego for us, we don't really know how to name what we feel. We're much better at identifying what other people around us might be feeling than what we're feeling. So mm -hmm. I would say, you know, get a feelings, week. get an emotional thesaurus every day before you start your work. And every day when you're done with your work, look at it and just without judgment, without trying to come up with the right feeling or what you wish you were feeling, what are you really feeling? And then say it out loud. There's a, there's an important part of vocalizing it that helps us to metabolize it. And that, that work itself, it sounds so simple. It's really hard to be disciplined about it. And it's really hard for, for a three to be really honest about it, but can start to take you leaps and bounds towards being more connected to what what you want because you even the way you framed the question you framed it around for the eyes of others right i want to be better yeah. for them right i want to be better for my family i want to be better for the people i work with how can i do this so that i can be better for them which is great intention right and and, and ultimately will be the outcome but yeah. i would i would invert that and i would say how can you be better for you how can mm -hmm. you be more connected to you and, you know, what all nine types have in common is that we're living on the surface of our own experience. We're living at a distance from ourselves and we need our sort of type specific practices to start to get reconnected to what's really going on for us. And when mm -hmm. we do that, it ripples out and all that you're desiring for, you know, being better for people will become a more authentic way that you can be versus the temptation of a three, which is how do I get better at this for them? But in a way, if I'm being really honest, because I want them to see me that way, right? Mm -hmm. There's that constant like reflection back that image consciousness of how can I do this really well so that I look really good at being, I want to, I want to, I want to appear to be the most emotionally intelligent person there is, right? Yeah. The ego itself. I catch myself in it all the time. As I was writing the book, I caught myself doing it, right? Like wanting to share this because I believe deeply in this. And at the same time, sometimes getting caught up in the how people would receive these words and the appearance they would, you know, how this would reflect back on me. So keep coming back to yourself is what I would say. Name your feelings. And um, and then of course for, for three, because, you know, um, we we get into action a lot, but but we're not always connected to what's going on in our bodies. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, I would say any kind of um, way that helps you feel more grounded and centered in your body um, would be a good practice as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like for myself, I think it goes back to that self-deception that you talked about. Like, and like, I'm, I'm not like, I love learning. I read all the time, listen to podcasts all the time. And I think that's probably one of the things that I, I know that I'm very vulnerable Mm. to that self-deception. And I think that's part of the thing of even me wanting to ask the question of what to pay attention to, because I, like, I, like I've been in the place where I can lie to myself Mm -hmm. so much Mm -hmm. that I just want to make sure that like, I have like this, it is kind of like I have the safeguards in place. Like I have the things in place so that I can know, oh yeah, disproportionate reaction. Oh yeah. That really bothered me. Things like that. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I, in doing that and, and and I said this already, but I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of just even just five minutes a day of meditation, Mm -hmm. um, focusing on the breath and part of what that, and that's one of those brilliant and needed practices for all nine types, although particularly hard for three sevens and eights to sit still that long. Um, not only is there all the research, of course, about, you know, the calming effects of, you know, in the central nervous system and the regulation and all that, but it's, it's a discipline of training our minds to pay attention to what we want to pay attention to, because it, it, it draws your attention into something It keeps you pulling back to what is the thing I want to pay attention to mm-hmm. versus habitually where my attention goes, which as a three will be all over the place into the room and the aesthetics and the vibe and what everybody wants from you and what, what looks good and what's going to be celebrated here. Uh, what matters to you, you know, all those, you know, friend groups, whatever. And just the act of like that, it's like developing a muscle of pulling back into that attention so that you can, you know, I, I, I mentioned the Victor Frankl quote, um, which talk, and I don't have it exactly in front of me, but you know, between stimulus and response, there's a, a choice, mm-hmm. there's a space. And in that space lies our choice and, and our freedom. And I messed that up, but that's basically the gist. Yep. And what doing these practices are, whatever the necessary practices are for you on your personal journey of inner work, and I'm using you collectively for the listeners, mm-hmm. it starts to help us widen the space between stimulus and response. Because until we do that, we are automated most of the time. We just react, right? We're programmed. Mm-hmm. Our brains are brilliant at forming habit, which serves us really well. It allows us to drive to work while talking on the phone and you know, doing all sorts of things we probably shouldn't be doing while driving. And then we get there and we kind of even remember that we drove to work and we're like, I don't even know how I got here, but I'm here. And we were operating all sorts of tasks because our brains are so great at, at forming habit. But the downside of that, the, 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 you know, the, the liability of that is that we we tend to put onto the automation um, part of our brains most of our lived experience, and then we just live out of our type. And yeah. so when we start doing this work, we kind of reclaim our agency over what we really want, who we really are, what we really want, how we're really going to get there. Um, and it helps us start to pay attention to what we're paying attention to, because what we pay attention to in life determines what we miss in life. Mm-hmm. We've, we've 
obviously spent a lot of time talking about threes and what threes <laughs> need to pay attention to, yeah, uh, which I'm very grateful for. <laughs> um, let's let's you know kind of maybe go go around the wheel and and talk about what what are some of the things that each type should pay attention to as it pertains to um, just their emotional healing, their emotional intelligence. Yeah. Um, it's, it's challenging to do this in a, in a generic way, but mm-hmm. you know, so ones being the uh, perfectionist, I would say, um, and the improver, um, pay attention to when you start trying to compulsively um, do more, be better, uh, when you sort of are focused and when you, when you sort of feel the internal irritation of um, when the world around you isn't living up to your standards or you're not living up to your standards, when the inner critic starts turning on and telling you not good enough, all of that is coming at you from the, the, the ego that, um, that says you're not good enough and it's not true. It's, it's a lie. And, you know, so you have to be able to start to figure out how to confront the fear uh, that you're wrong or bad in some way because you're not. And so you need to go into that story. And so all the sort of, you know, there's, again, different subtypes yeah. means that different ones have different paths. And I don't want to take up, we'd have to spend hours here kind of going yeah. through all the potential scenarios. Um, but that would be a starting place. I think for twos, um, you know, I think, you know, they're, they're, they're big. I mean, I'll talk about these in terms of the fears, because I think yeah. that might be a good way to pay attention. Right. So I said for ones being, you know, fear of being wrong or bad or corrupt in some way, if you can stop your efforts long enough to question the story you're holding about why you're doing this or why you feel this resentment or whatever you're experiencing, it's that sort of anger that's coming from the one being able to question what what am i what story am i believing right now and is it true and for a two uh two's fear being unwanted or unneeded in some way and so they set about trying to seduce and please other people as a way to receive affirmation and gratitude so that they can somehow feel uh, wanted and needed and it's often a projection of their own unexpressed needs onto other people so they don't have to ask directly to have their needs met because they fear so much that if they were to ask to have their needs met directly and that somebody might directly reject them so so much of what they're doing is a give to get and so stopping long enough before you do anything on behalf or for anybody else to question the intention but again like all types if we don't have daily practices of checking in with our emotions of doing mm-hmm. some kind of body work of doing some kind of mindfulness work we probably aren't going to develop the discipline very easily to stop long enough and in this case for a two to stop long enough to say what's really behind this is this really mine to do is this really mine to help with do i really know the best way to help and if the answer is no then don't do anything mm-hmm. um, i'm gonna skip three so we spent enough time on them as you say uh fours you know they this is a much this is a more complex one because you know fours fear being you know insignificant or fatally flawed in some way but the three different kinds of flavors of four are more disparate from one another than any of the other subtypes mm-hmm. sixes get all the credit for this because you've got the classic phobic and counterphobic six but fours are far far different 
you know, so social fours are the fours you tend to hear described. They're the ones that suffer. They're the sad four. But the self-preservation dominant four sometimes get mistyped as sevens or threes or something more sunny because they're long suffering. They're almost masochistic mm. in their suffering. Like they, they learned how to endure suffering. Uh, the one-to-one four, uh, they are the mad four, right? So you've got the sad four, the mad four, and the glad four. And this, the mad four, they, they outsource their suffering. They want you to suffer for them, right? And so they can sometimes mistype as eights. Mm. And so for all fours, it's coming back to the relationship with suffering. And even though they deal with it differently, they have this over-identification with suffering. And being able to... Um, be able to pause and notice when you're doing the comparison thing. Because what drives the suffering for fours is the emotional vice of envy, where they're constantly, because of that fear that they feel that they're different than or insignificant in some way, they unconsciously and sometimes consciously are, are looking around every room and wondering, am I better than you? Are you better than me? And that envy leads to this perpetual suffering. And then depending on subtypes, it leads to a different kind of reaction to it. So I would say, um, pay attention to envy. And again, this is so, this is such simplified approach to this stuff because as we said at the beginning, this is lifelong journey kind of work. Yeah. So I don't want to oversimplify, but for the, the sake of brevity, we'll keep going. Uh, fives fear being overwhelmed in some way. And so they have a tendency to retreat into their minds and process life from a distance, from a safe di distance. What they fear being overwhelmed with the most is feeling itself. They're very sensitive. Um, so sensitive that that's why they overuse the mind and they retreat up there to stay at a safe distance. And you'll often hear, um, Fives describe an emotional experience long after the fact in the past versus experiencing it in the moment. So, you know, the question for fives is how can you show up and get into your body now and be present and allow your feelings to be felt and expressed in real time? And then notice when you do that, that you weren't completely engulfed or overwhelmed, that you're okay. Um, for sixes, um, they fear being without any kind of support or guidance or living in any kind of chaos. Mm -hmm. So they, um, they end up in this cycle of questioning and doubting everything and trying to scenario plan over every possible risk. And it's, and it, and it's complicated. Sixes, as I mentioned, are complicated. Maybe not as complicated as fours, but they're complicated because the subtype matters a lot. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but I guess I would say pay attention to when problem solving moves to problem seeking. Hmm. Uh, sevens, um, you know, sevens, sevens, it's often difficult for sevens to notice that, that there's anything that would need to be changed for them <laughs> because they're the consummate reframers of all negatives into positives and they live so far out in the future and constantly, you know, not all of them are so exuberantly fun all the time, but they certainly are trying to stay ahead of suffering. So different than fours who over identify with suffering. Sevens fear that if suffering ever caught up to them, it would never leave them uh, and they'd be trapped in pain forever. So they're always trying to outrun limitations. And so for a seven, I would say, where can you find and embrace limitation mm -hmm. and just, and, and see it for the gift that it is right? like games themselves have rules and limitations. Otherwise the game couldn't exist, right? It's more fun 
when there are some limits. And so where can you in your life where you maybe have been avoiding limitations, where can you seek them out um, and let that be some of your work? Eights, uh, you know, they fear being controlled. Um, so they power up and deny vulnerability and try to power through everything and everyone as a way to stay ahead of this fear and compensate for this fear. Um, it's, you know, slowing down long enough to get connected to what I think is often a very soft center, um, that they, they want to guard against mm -hmm. is important. Um, constantly slowing down. Ask yourself before you do anything, who do I need to, who else do I need to consult? What other information do I need? What if I'm not right? Um, so that you can start paying attention to emotions and paying attention to thinking before you act. Um, notice that when you feel the most powered up, ask yourself, where are you afraid? What are you afraid of? Because the more powered up you feel in the moment that you just want to bulldoze i would say the most the more vulnerable you probably are in the moment and vulnerability is a strength for you the best leaders the best um friends and best partners are the ones that can connect with vulnerability it's not a weakness uh nines i you know they they fear being um separated or cut off from other important people in their lives and so they try to avoid being disrupted and they try to avoid being unsettled and avoid conflict in, in any way because they think that conflict could lead to permanently being cut off from people and, and all that, and they, they don't want that. So they um, they go to sleep to themselves. The nine sit on top of the Enneagram, symbolically representing that all of us have gone to sleep to ourselves. All of us have gone to sleep to ourselves and substituted real self for persona. And so for a nine, paying attention to all the ways that you're not showing up and push yourself to show up more, speak up in a meeting, talk first, say where you want to go to lunch before you, you know, ask the rest of the group where they want to go to lunch, like assert yourself and notice that people appreciate it, that they're glad that you're here with them. Hmm. So that was a super simplified yeah. way of talking about it without having an actual person in front of me and hearing yeah. what they're going through. But that's a that's at least a quick tour. Yeah. Well, I think and even as you were talking about this, I was thinking about this even in my own life. It's there's there's such simplicity in it, but it's the complexity that comes out of that because it's mm -hmm. even what I was talking about earlier with um with being reluctant or you know being being afraid to share some of the minute details because ultimately it does come down to well, I'm afraid that you're not going to find that it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. enough yeah you um, talked about the self-preservation but tell me more about that because i think you that's that's something else we didn't talk about that like is the sharing maybe not gonna look good on you is that a, is that part of what's slowing you down as well yeah i i think that i think that is definitely part of it and in fact i would say that that's probably the it's it's not that it's not that I'm like, oh man, I think someone is going to, you know, dislike me for it. It's more like, well, I just don't even think that what I've done, because it's so minute, is interesting enough to even share hmm. with them. Or um, 
it's um, I'm processing this as as we're talking. It's like it's not even that I'm afraid that they'll dislike me because of it. it's like I don't think it's worth sharing because I don't think that this will get someone to like me. Right. <laughs> and yeah, because it's not impressive enough. Yeah. It's so yep. minute. Yep. And again, two, threes, and fours, heart center. It's the image consciousness is all around looking for relationships for personal validation because what we share across all the heart types is that we didn't get or at least we didn't perceive to get as a young person that's sort of mirroring back that you're loved you're wanted you're okay mm -hmm. your feelings matter your identity matters all of those things weren't internalized and so then this is the internal chatter that happens as a you know you're sitting there going I don't know if I should tell somebody I, I walked the dog because maybe that's not interesting enough. Maybe that won't help them like me more. Like, yeah. And all this other stuff that, you know, that other types wouldn't even think about. Like an eight would just be like, oh, yeah, I walked the dog today. He was a real pain. He pulled on the leash. I think I'm going to get rid of that dog or whatever they might yeah. might be going through. Totally different experience. And, and, and what it points to is that the way we see things isn't objective. It isn't even normal. It's just one of many ways that people see the world differently. And so the other beautiful part of doing this work is it's really opened up a lot of um, compassion in me and, um, and more beauty in the world a little bit when I start seeing all the different ways that people perceive reality and it's nowhere near the reality that I see. You know, none of us see an objective truth. We all see a vantage point, you know, and um, anyway, I think it's, I think it can add to so much relational health when we can really start to see and appreciate all the different mm -hmm. things. Like what you just shared was vulnerable and beautiful because that's, that's a truth of a three and your listeners right now didn't, didn't know that about you. And now they know that about you. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny. Cause I, I, it's something that I knew about myself. I, I just didn't. I didn't put it together until this conversation. Like, oh yeah, that is a very three thing. Like I'm a, you know, I'm a, I don't want to share things that aren't interesting because that's why uh, impatience can be a very, uh, a thing that I struggle with because I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, you're not sharing really any, I, I project onto people myself mm -hmm. and I go, you're not even sharing me any interesting details. <laughs> Mm -hmm. right now and i wouldn't do that and so i don't know why you're doing that. yeah yeah uh yeah yeah well there's uh there's a few other things i want to ask you about just pertaining uh to the book a couple of quotes that i want to read that i would love to have you uh just elaborate on because um, you just you hit it right on you hit the nail right on the head with it I think it's towards the beginning of the book. You say, uh, it seems to me that in many instances, the term emotional intelligence has almost become synonymous for how we think about people we like and people we don't like. If I get along with you and you don't get in my way or bother me, I say you are a person with high emotional intelligence. Uh, if, on the other hand, you are a challenge for me to work with, I don't often agree with your opinions or don't understand your feelings. I might describe you as having low emotional intelligence. Can you first expound on that and and talk to us more about why that isn't the case? Yeah. Um, I was thinking of actual real specific conversations that I had had. So obviously, you know, this I, the reason I said it seems to me as this wasn't a study I'd done 
but in my lived experience, both in my coaching practice, but also just in talking with other leaders and other places and the way they would talk about somebody as having low emotional intelligence on their team or whatnot. I listened to the description that followed and I'm like, you just, you're just a very different persona than this person is really what you're telling me. There's nothing you've said in here that suggests to me that this person is completely disconnected from their emotional experience or you know, they, they're, they're acting in a way that could be you know, objectively defined as emotionally unintelligent. So I think, you know, it's like when we talk about awareness, like I feel like you get, a, people kind of know what it is, but we don't always know what we mean when we say it, you know, mm. um, emotional intelligence, I think it's the same thing. It's like, it's a, it's a term that's been popularized over the last, you know, 30 years, you know, more and more. But again, I think you get, you ask people, well, what really is it? And you get kind of vague answers um, and not, not consistency. Um, when you ask them, how do you develop it? Not that nobody really seems to know that I talk to really. It's like, you know, again, going back to our earlier conversation, well, I just, you know, it's learning how to be, you know, better at this or more of this or less of this. And so I think, I think because it's been a sort of not clearly defined or really understood concept we just kind of tend to use it as a measure for how we feel about people and mm -hmm. that's not what emotional intelligence is right um in fact i think as we were just sort of talking about a moment ago the more we become emotionally intelligent the more space and grace we have for other people and different personas and different perspectives and the more tolerance we have for them and not trying to change the way they see think or feel and we become much more accepting of all these different truths that are different than ours. And that is a measure of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know, one of, uh, I've, I've recently moved into a work role to where I find myself, I'm in the hiring process more, mm -hmm. like I'm in, in interview, interviews. And one of the things that I'm looking for is I'm looking for just what you're talking about emotional intelligence, awareness, what do you personally, like, what do you look for whenever you're trying to like figure out or determine like a person's level of awareness of, of just themselves? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, what comes to mind, because I don't think I have a clear, brilliant answer for you, but I would say humility. Mm-hmm. Um, a certain level of appropriate vulnerability and honesty. Um, when I ask people about their aspirations, that it would include some real growth and stretch goals they might have for themselves because they recognize that they're a person on a journey, um, mm -hmm. that they haven't arrived. Anytime somebody tries to present to me that they're incredibly emotionally intelligent, red, red flags all over mm -hmm. the place, right? Um, if they tell me, you know, I'm, 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 I'm super self-aware and I, I have high emotional intelligence. I'm like, oh, maybe that, that study I pointed to, oh, I think I pointed to earlier in our conversation. Uh, and I know it's in the book about how little self-awareness there is in the world. The study also revealed the more self-aware somebody thinks they are, the opposite is to be true. And so when I think, and I think part of the reason is that, um, if you think you're there, you're kind of rigid and closed off from evolution, right? From, from 
from growing and changing and evolving in your journey. And I think when you're humble enough to acknowledge that awareness is fluid and I myself, you know, in a, in a given day, I will operate at times in high awareness and then have slipped down to low awareness in the, mm -hmm. in the span of a couple hours. Mm. And that's dependent on all, all sorts of factors, which are explained in the book. Um, so I look for humility. I look for somebody who knows they need, they, they're on a path and they want to still grow and they have a vision for who they want to become. I think those are some things um, that stand out. Um, but it's hard, I guess. I guess honesty is what the overarching um, umbrella is, I think, for those things. Like somebody's mm -hmm. just honest. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I want to ask you about, because it, it really just got me thinking, I'd love to have you expound on it more is in in the section on stress management specifically you talk about flexibility tolerance and optimism in the mm -hmm. role that they play um one in our growth and then in uh our emotional intelligence and awareness as well would you mind kind of expounding on each of those and maybe like how how can we grow in that more grow in each of those things yeah um well, so those are the subscale. So, so the the five components I use in the book: self perception, self expression, mm -hmm. interpersonal relationships, decision making, and stress management. Those are the sort of five composite scales that we talk that I hang all those off of. Each one of those scales have three subscales in the emotional intelligence framework, and I don't use any of the other subscales in the other chapters. That's why the stress management chapter got so long, but mm -hmm. it's. Well, long, it's a short, it's a short book overall, but it's, you know, it got long relative to the other chapters, but it's because it's so important um, to me. One is that the stress is, stress levels and anxiety levels in the country and in the world really are, are on the rise and skyrocketing and it's a real mm -hmm. problem. And if we don't have the capacity to handle that or just to overcome those things, you can forget about the other four measures, right? If stress is, is running the show and outdoing us, um, our perception, our perception of ourselves, of others, all the things start to unravel and fall apart. Our relationships suffer, our health suffers, everything suffers. Now, a little bit of stress is fine, right? I'm not talking about a utopia where there's no stress because stress has a function that actually helps us in short doses actually perform better and you can maybe think more clearly. High measures, it distorts thinking, it's, it's, it's just, it hurts health, all the things. Now, within that, the subscales, flexibility, optimism, and tolerance, it's a way to kind of look at where, you know, we talked about the, the instincts, the survival instincts getting out of balance. These things can get out of balance pretty quick as well. So flexibility um, points us to the ways that our type structure is either naturally more go with the flow or more rigid. And what does that mean per type? right in terms of the way mm -hmm. that you tend to show up because for us to handle stress we have to have a certain amount of flexibility we don't want to lose all of our stability but we have to have the ability to flex and not try to control all the outcomes so much of the stress that we have in life now stress is multi-dimensional i don't want to oversimplify it you know or suggest that you can just fix it you can't just it's not just a, a quick fix but us our temp our 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 um our sort of um, predisposition, I think that all types have to trying to control outcomes is really problematic. And for some, 
um, that's more problematic than others in terms of trying to control outcomes. And so uh, flexibility allows us to start to, to have some movement within the realities that we're experiencing. Um, you know, uh, to try to bring it to life more, eights, nines, and ones tend to be really rigid, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're body types. They think they know, instinctually know what's right and wrong and good and bad and just and unjust, and they're often right in that. But because they're often right in that, and because it's a gut kind of embodied belief, they can be quite, quite inflexible, right? And so some of the work they need to do is bring in some flexibility. Um, there's also tolerance. Um, now tolerance is complex. Like, um, we don't want to just become like the self-preservation four I mentioned earlier, where they just learn to tolerate all sorts of suffering, no matter what. Um, but there's, there's a lot of work to be done on, on learning for each type in its own way, how to become more tolerant of the things that we face that may not agree with what we want. Um, and I think all types have a different way because you got to remember all nine Enneagram types are strategies for trying to get what we want. And we become very intolerant of the things that don't get us to what we want. And so mm -hmm. each type has their own sort of relationship with tolerance. And then optimism is, you know, ultimately it's about hope. And I'm not talking about shallow platitude type wishful thinking hope. I'm talking about, you know, each type trying to again control outcomes when they can't do that can really fall prey to specific levels of stress related to the the ways that they didn't get their needs met um they uh sorry i got distracted for a moment because my dog started going crazy um they um each type you know each type uh can struggle with believing and accepting that things will be ultimately be okay. And, you know, I'm not talking about, and I, and I point this out in the book as well, like sevens, who's the consummate reframer and chooses optimism over reality sometimes. That's a, so for them, the work they need to do is actually bring optimism down a little mm -hmm. bit and get into reality, accept limitations and accept hard truths and allow suffering to do its work. And for another type, like a four, who almost enjoys suffering masochistically sometimes, right, can overstick and, and start to tell themselves a story that things are never going to be okay, they have a lot of work to do to bring up optimism. So, so what ultimately the chapter points to is it's not about maximum levels of tolerance, optimism, um, don't worry that kind of stuff it's about mm -hmm. bringing into balance all of these things it's about mm -hmm. looking where your type distorts one of these or both of the or two or two mm -hmm. or three and learning how do you bring those back into balance and that creates a container for us by which we can grow our capacity for the inevitable stress that will enter our lives and at the same time hopefully over time reduce the number of times we feel really stressed because we stop trying to have so much control over our lives. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that there's so many of the things that we could talk about, but just as we're closing, is there anything top of mind that you want to make sure that we're mentioning to regards to our conversation or the book or anything like that? Um, no, I mean, I think I 
I think you've we've done a great job of covering a lot of ground. I really like this conversation. So thank you for having me on. I think um, maybe what I'd leave, leave us with is what Carl Jung said. And this is this this speaks to our personality construction, our Enneagram type. You know, we 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 contain all nine types and we over-identified with one type as a way to get our needs met. And it worked for us. But as Carl Jung said, what is great in the morning will be little at evening. And what in the morning was true will at evening become a lie. Which means that these personas work for us. They have value for us. And then at some point, they that value starts to diminish. And so if you're feeling like your strategies in life, you know, aren't working out the way they used to, and you're looking back in the rearview mirror and you're seeing outcomes that are undesirable and not what you wanted, and you're confused about why they're happening, I really invite you to step into this work and find a coach, you know, find a therapist, find, find a spiritual director, find somebody who understands what this work looks like and the path and journey you want to go on and can help you uh, rediscover the parts of yourself that you maybe have hid away from your consciousness and would like to get back and become a more whole, uh, healed uh, person. Hmm. Well, Scott, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, The Enneagram of Emotional Intelligence, and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah, so you can find me, we can go to scottyallender.com. My last name is spelled A-L-L-E-N-D-E-R. You can um, find me on Instagram at scott.allender or I have an Enneagram account on Instagram called at EQ Enneagram. Um, and it's not an Enneagram resource, but if you want to listen to my leadership podcast, uh, I have a podcast called The Evolving Leader. Awesome. Well, Scott, thanks so much for being on the podcast today and just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Thanks, Caleb. Appreciate it. You know, as we're closing out the episode, one of the things that just this conversation really made me think a lot about is it really just made me reflect on some of the, the work that I'm trying to do in my own life. And whether that be through conversations here on the podcast or uh, counseling as well. You know, two things that have recently just shifted my perspective on things and in their in one sense they're pretty simple but in another sense they're very impactful and transformative for me the one is learning learning what i really want and i i feel like in, in one sense i've learned that i learned what i want out of life but the other thing that I think I'm learning about, and it's just a new dynamic, it's a new dimension to it, is whenever it comes to relationships, what do I want? Whenever it comes to, I feel like I'm just learning that in just a whole nother level and learning that it's okay not to, to justify it, that I don't feel like I need to justify, oh, hey, I want this because of blank. It's okay to say that I want this or that I don't want it. 
And you know, you learn a little bit about yourself whenever you whenever you state that as well. And it's not that having the the reasons for it aren't enough or aren't aren't bad or for having those reasons. But what I realized for myself and what my counselor helped me realize is that I felt like I had to justify what I want to somebody. It wasn't enough for me to say, you know what, I really want this. I had to justify it to somebody. And so I'm I'm learning and I'm getting better about what I want and learning to just be more direct with it. And the other thing that I think that I'm learning is who do I want to be? And learning to be and that who I want to be is not dependent on what someone else does. That I don't act kindly to somebody. That I don't act out of love towards somebody. Because I think it will get them to change. But I act that way because that's the type of person that I want to be. And you know, the the way that I wrote it down is... The other part that comes with that is for me and my faith as well. Of comparing and contrasting what I want with what God wants. Or what I believe that what God wants. And in learning to to just dig into the differences there and figure out okay where where am I aligning with that where are things different than that and what does that tell me about myself and what do I learn through that experience and also realizing that many times that what God wants for me is different and better than than what I even think is possible for myself. That who I want to be does not have to be determined by what I want or don't want someone else to do. That I'm trying not to be manipulative in it. I'm trying to be loving and caring and compassionate. And the other thing that I'm learning is that I don't have to let what I do or don't know get in the way of who I want to be. That what I know about somebody or what I don't know about somebody doesn't have to stop me from being the person that I want to be. It doesn't have to stop me from being a person of love. And so those, yeah, this this conversation with Scott and really just, I feel like I'm just going through a lot of reflection right now in my life. And so, yeah, I just kind of wanted to share some of the things that I'm reflecting on. And, you know, there's lots of things that I reflect on, lots of things that I learn from. And so if you want to keep up with me, you know, you know the deal. Hit uh, subscribe to the Substack, and I'll give you all the things that I'm currently learning from. And yeah, so I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say, say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Scott for being on the podcast as well. And uh, just for the helpful, you know, coaching slash counseling as well. And yeah, thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.